0: Your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items
1: only. Exclusions
0: apply. Welcome back, everybody, to Post Wrestling. It is John Pollock here. It's our UFC 260 preview, joined by not one, but two former colleagues. Up first you know and love him from fight network he is cody Saftic. cody welcome back to post wrestling hey john always my pleasure to be
2: joined and we got james lynch on the show so it really is a little reunion of sorts uh definitely have to be joined and a, and a
0: really nice looking card as well this is true james lynch joining us as well uh a, a man of many outlets uh most recently joining the team at middle easy so congratulations james and thanks very much for joining us today
1: Thanks, John, and happy to be here. Now it was nice to uh, talk with some former Fight Network
0: uh, alumni. It's uh, it's a good time. Now, did you two did you two just miss each other, or was there there overlap between you two? At, no, the Fight we Network? worked together
1: like okay. briefly. I want I want to say I worked with Cody for maybe like I want to say like four or five months because I remember le- I left in like a December. I remember doing one more Christmas party, and that was it for me. So yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So yeah, I think I started there, it would have been like October, October 2011. And I guess if James is saying he left December 2011, then yeah, that's only a couple months. And then, yeah, I mean, we're all Toronto based, right? So I know I would run into him at shows, and he would come cover a lot of the regional MMA shows, we kind of run into each other and chat. But um, yeah, when I was there, James would mostly just do like the Bellator. And Bellator, as he'll remember, was like, in its infancy, they would do like Bellator 3, he did all the recaps, all the voiceovers. A lot of good stuff. And then now to see where Bellator is in 2021, I mean, it kind of makes you feel old. Oh, we're talking about this 260 headliner in a minute, right? Like we all remember when Stipe broke into the UFC, you know, made his debut. And now he's 39 years old uh, going one last hurrah. Like a-, a part of me does start to feel like it almost becomes
0: nostalgic. Was it, wasn't that it, UFC debut of his October 2011? Like the, the fight world gave us Stipe Miocic and Cody Saftik in the same month.
2: Yeah, you know yeah. what? Actually, the very first conversation I had, because up until then, it's like I was doing recaps as well and, like, didn't really know anybody, and you don't feel comfortable going up to your new colleagues and just starting to talk MMA and all that. But I started there, and it was uh, Shogun versus Dan Henderson one, which, as you guys will remember, is like – and I remember that was like it broke the iceberg. Like, everybody walked into the office, and everyone was just, like, extremely pumped up, and, and that's how I really kind of start meeting people. They're like, oh, let's come to lunch. Like, you're excited for that big fight. So, and, I mean, it's the same now as it was 10 years ago. Like, big fights always have that extra spe- extra feeling – No, it's just like something in the air that you you can get up for.
0: I guess I guess James, quote unquote, office space. This was this was the dance studio era. The,
1: the dance studio, yeah, exactly. I was yeah, I was talking to. Uh, we, I told you this off air, John. Uh, we was talking to Dave
0: Rutherford actually
1: last week, just out of the blue, uh, just uh, on something different. But uh, yeah, it's crazy to think that we worked there, and it was like I remember us building the studio, and like yeah, it's just it's nuts. So what 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 a time that was.
0: Yeah, there's often the metaphor of like uh, working out of a broom closet. Like our podcast studio literally was a converted broom closet. <laughs> <That's> right, <yeah. laughs> there's nothing glamorous about it, but. Uh, it, it did make for some uh, some fun stories in hindsight. Uh, as we are, are looking towards uh, UFC 260, I kind of wanted to start off because it's going to be very interesting this week. Uh, tickets are going on sale for this UFC 261 card a month from now in Jacksonville, Florida. And I'll start with you, Cody. Like, trying to run a show at full capacity, what do you think the public's reception is going to be? Are you expecting this to be an event that sells out? Is there going to be hesitation from the public? What are you expecting from this on sale?
2: Yeah, I would expect it to be a sellout crowd. I don't know what capacity they're going to go to. A lot of the times you'll see with, you know, the NFL or certain certain sporting leagues have been able to run at half capacity or quarter capacity. Whatever the UFC decides to do, I think that they'll, they'll get, uh, you know, they'll probably have a sellout crowd. I say that because you look at all the other events That have gone on and and tried to have to a limited crowd, whether it be the Buffalo Bills having something in New York with 5,000, it it sells out, right? There's always going to be a portion of people that just aren't afraid. You know, you you see it all the time. You walk around the the streets of Toronto or I guess in any metropolitan city, a lot of people are adhering to it. They're wearing their masks and a lot of people, they just don't quite care. I think that there's that, that niche of people that want to go out to live events still. They want to go to concerts. They want to see live music. They want to see live sporting events. They want to see fights. And going to Florida, which is, you know, a fight town, and they've always, you know, drawn good crowds there, I could see a large portion saying, you know, we don't care. We're going to go. I think the same thing will happen with Texas when they go either to San Antonio or wherever they decide to go uh, in Texas. It'll be the same thing. They'll, they'll sell a decent amount of crowd. If they want to go to New York, if they want to go something on the east on the eastern board, I don't think that they would have that that, that big interest, that, that big – that being said, if they put it together a good card and
0: they're selling 20,000, 30,000 seats, I think that it'll probably uh, fill out and be be a success. I'll throw the same question to you, James. And, and converse, I mean, this is not it's really a non-starter for us based in Canada. But if you geographically were in or around Florida and were assigned to this event, what would be your comfort level of going and covering this event?
1: I'd be a little worried just because I have a family, obviously, and I don't want that to get impacted, you know, me going there. I know my, I'd probably hear about it, you know, from family members about, you know, going to do this. So there would be some hesitation as long as I did sort of the proper protocols. I actually did a regional event two weeks ago for Rise mm-hmm. FC. I was doing commentary with another Fight Network alumni, Robin Black. And, uh, you know, my wife was worried about that, but we were very good. We wore our masks. We, you know, kept our distance. Um, you know, even in the broadcast booth, Robin and I were our six feet. So, um, you know, I think it's definitely possible. To answer your question, though, I think it will Sellout, and the reason I say that is because I've even talked to people that are like, you know, not even in our industry, talking about flying down and seeing this event. Wow. Like there is some, still some places where people can, you know, go and, and travel there and cover the event and be, you know, sort of on the forefront. Not only that, look at the two names involved. You've got Masvidal and Usman. Uh, more so, Masvidal, I would say, but this guy is just still a, a huge draw in the in the UFC, and you know, sort of has that star power. So I could see fans from all states, you know, wanting to make the trip. People haven't seen live sports. Um I, I could see it being a sell just from that perspective of people just dying to see some live sports dying to be you know a part of the first UFC card with you know full capacity um so don't underestimate the craziness of MMA fans I guess is what I'm trying to say
0: No I'm not doing that I I I lean towards you guys like I I think this is going to be an event that is going to do very well for a uh, from the the live gate perspective I just, I, I'm definitely concerned about it. And I think we don't even have mm-hmm. to look further than, I mean, just look at this card on Saturday that has been decimated by, by COVID. And it's hardly an anomaly. Like they're, like you go to these Wikipedia pages for these UFC events. Like it is just littered with people that have been affected by all of this. Uh, you hope for the best, uh, next month. But, uh, looking at this card, uh, coming up on Saturday, uh, it's, All focused now on the main event, we lost the featherweight championship fight between Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega, and really leaves Alexander Volkanovsky in this really precarious position, because does this guy go back home during this part? Does he just stay idle in America until this fight is rescheduled? And how far away is that? It just seems, Cody, like Alexander Volkanovsky is in the very definition of limbo.
2: Yeah, actually his mother's been fighting with people online on Facebook specifically saying that she is a hundred percent sure at certain adamant that he did not get the COVID in Australia and that she wants him to come home. She thinks that the UFC did a poor job with the safety regulations and that this is something that he must have picked up coming stateside. When you see him in the room, you know, pictures that were taken of Alexander Volkanovsky prior to coming over he's in the room with Shane Young and Jamie Malarkey both who have been rumored to be removed from this card as well but then were re-added so I'm not exactly certain of the situation I'm not sure if they'll end up getting pulled off still but I don't think he's going to stay stateside I think that there's enough worry that in you know like you're saying in Florida and Texas and they're opening up these places in Las Vegas they're getting all these positive cases, even in Canada. I mean, in Ontario specifically, the numbers are keep rising. Everyone's talking about this third wave. Australia and New Zealand have done a really good job of protecting their citizens. And I just feel like that there's this feeling amongst other countries that the U.S. is, so to speak, dropping the ball on the whole the COVID situation. So I don't know that he decides to stay uh, stateside. I think that he would take the first flight, go back home, quarantine for his 14 days, and then jump back into camp. I imagine the UFC would want to rebook this fight in the in the not-so-distant future. But as we've all seen with the Kamzat-Chemayev situation, it's not exactly that easy. You can have a guy test test positive multiple times. You can also have a guy have these lingering effects and just can't train at the optimal level. So there's a lot of moving parts going around. And, I mean, yeah, I mean, you look at 260, and it looked like the best-looking card of the year. It, losing the Volkanovski-Ortega fight certainly puts a large blemish on it, but you're seeing the Jessica Panay fight fall off. You're seeing, uh, you know, uh, William Knight had to pull out of his fight as well. Like, it's a lot of fighters that are testing positive. It's a lot of fighters that are having their cornermen test positive. It's very difficult to put on a card for certainty. I guess that's why they always write on the poster, card subject to change. But in this case, it very much is so. But to answer the question about Alexander Volkanovsky, I feel like he he won't remain sitting around and then waiting for the next fight to get booked. And the UFC, I mean, it's a championship-level fight. You have both these guys are coming in. They're going to make way. They've put in a world-class camp. Both guys, are their bodies are, are peaking physically. It would be unfair to rebook this fight two weeks from now. You can do that with a William Now You can do that with an Alonzo Menafield. You can do that with a Jessica Panay. It's no big deal. I mean, you book it two weeks later. But this is a premier title fight. You've got to find the right card to slot it on. It's likely going to be another pay-per-view. So I don't think this just gets rebooked immediately. I think it's something that
0: will come back together a few months down the road. I don't know how crazy Alexander Volkanovsky's mother will be if he ends up getting rebooked for a full capacity yeah. uh, venue in Houston, Texas next month, James, <laughs> Or in yeah, May. Yeah,
1: no, I just I I'm with Cody. I just don't see it happening. They they have to take a wait and see approach. I think they learned this lesson like Cody said with with Hamza Chimayev where it's like you know they try and rebook it, and then it falls apart. Like the UFC had to scramble to get Bilal Muhammad to fight Leon Edwards because mm-hmm. Hamza Chimayev was not ready to go; he was very sick. So we'll we'll see how this. You know they're they're, they're going to be on standby. It's basically Volkanovski's health is going to determine when this fight's going to get booked. It's not going to be whether they have an event and if it can fit the mold. I think they they have to wait around to make sure everything's a okay. It's too big of a fight not to do it. Like Cody said, you can't just you know if this is a you know fight where you need to rebook something it it's not that type of fight it's a fight where you need to wait and see and take the right approaches to have it rebooked so yeah totally with Cody
0: there I'm just curious if Volkanovsky is in a similar boat that Dan Hooker was that just to get back home, like it was much more than a two week period. He had to go through like six weeks a- after that fight with Michael Chandler just to get back home. And that's where if, if he's looking at that predicament, it's like, do you just stay here during this time and wait to get booked? Like you're, you're looking at a significant amount of time if that is the case, uh, given, given how serious that quarantines are in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, yeah.
2: I would say it's difficult for him though, right? Because I mean, his primary training partners are all in Australia, New Zealand, right? So he's going to go back to that part of the world, his dietitians there, his strength and conditioning coaches there, he puts his full camp in there. He was originally going to Tiger Muay Thai for a little bit of time. But when the pandemic happened, he anchored himself at home. So even if he was to stay stateside, I mean, think about the logistics and having to bring all these people now over with them it's more than just having your cornermen with you they've got to remain in stateside they've got to stay with you but your training partners like this is a continuous camp now you're not just sitting around waiting for the fight to happen you're jumping back into camp for the week or two before it happens. you got to get your body physically peaking again so i would say he moves yeah that's interesting um my uncle actually just got back from chile like two days ago and there, There's like the protocol is, is way different. Like it changes day to day. I mean, it used to be you had to come back you had you to spend three days in a, in a hotel in Toronto and then you had to quarantine an additional 14 days. But he got a negative test before he got on the plane. He got here. He spent two days in a quarantine hotel and then got a second negative test and free to roam the streets. So that's a two day process. And he'd been in Chile for like four months. Wow. So, I again, I think Australia, and New Zealand have taken a different approach. They like keeping their citizens, you know, properly contained and, and properly, you know, go through the proper channels. But again, this might it, it might be a lot different than what we're thinking. It is. It might be as easy as him taking a flight, going, t- taking a negative test, maybe staying in a, in a hotel for a few days, and then being able to get back at it. But if they had told him, similar to a Dan Hooker, this is going to take you five weeks, six weeks, then at that point you've got to start weighing out the pros and the cons and thinking of a different strategy. But again, when you're, when you're making 12 and 12, the UFC just tells you what's happening when it's happening. And you accept that is what it is. When you're a world champion, you're making good money. You're selling pay-per-views. You're getting a cut of the headline uh, spot. You're getting, you're getting all these, these incentives. They're going to work with you a little bit more. that's what I would expect them to do here with Volkanovsky.
0: Well, let's shift on over to the heavyweight championship rematch between Stipe Miocic and Francis Ngannou. Uh, They last fought in January of 2018 and I guess, James, like the first fight, it was very much the the question of how would, would Francis last if this fight went any d- discernible length of time. And we saw as Francis wore on uh, throughout that fight, it was it was a very one sided performance, I thought, in the first fight. Have these last four fights for Nganu answered any more of those questions for you? Are you going into the second fight uh, with any clearer of a picture than you were the first time they fought?
1: No, but saying that I, I think Francis is going to win, and I'll, I'll sort of explain my logic here is that I think with Francis, while you know he, we, we knew the issues in the first fight, you know the cardio, the you know lack of preparation, they talked about this you know leading up to the fight where Francis, for whatever reason, decides to go to, to France you know during his training camp, and that traveling mm-hmm. I'm sure played it played a role in it as well and that's not discrediting Sippe Miocic as well because he took a hell of a punch in that fight and still came forward and ended up winning the fight. but well, there are some you know differences between this fight and the last fight the first uh, for you know, first off obviously is that he's at Extreme Couture. He's getting to work with Eric Nixick, who's a world class coach. We've seen the work that he's done with, you know, Dan Ige and, and a lot, you know, with and, and just even with Francis himself. You look at the shape he's in. He looks a lot different than he was in the first fight. Also, he's getting to work with a lot of really good training partners over there and you know, Roy Nelson, Vinny Magalesh. He has a lot of bodies at Extreme Couture that he didn't have back in France at the MMA factory with Fernand Lopez. So I think that's a plus as well. The other thing is Stipe Miosic, um, you know, he's, he's older, right? He's a couple years older. Father time, you know, doesn't stop for anyone. So he's older. He has a loss in between there since they, since they fought, which is the loss to Cormier where he was finished in that fight. The second Cormier fight, he was losing and it was only a comeback that Stipe ended up, you know, coming back and getting that win in the fight. So we have seen some weakness in Stipe in between then. Is that enough to, you know, for Francis to get it done? I think it is. I, I think there's a possibility of Francis, you know, going out there and knocking out Stipe Miocic, um, you know, in this fight. But, you know, like we know, if if it doesn't happen early, I think Stipe can, can take over just with that experience he has. Because have we learned anything? No, we haven't. Because all of his fights have been within the first round. They've been knockouts. I mean, we know he can do that. The question is, can he stop a takedown? Can he go five rounds if it needs to go that long? We don't have those answers. So a lot of what I'm basing on is just the hope that he has fixed that. But I I think even so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a close fight for a reason. And that's why Francis is the favorite, I think, is because they are banking on the fact that he has improved. He is younger. I mean, that's a fact. And, and just, you know, that Sipe, you know, isn't maybe what he was two years ago. He's still winning, but is he is, you know, is he in his prime right now? I don't know. It's tough to say. So yeah, I just based off just a bunch of assumptions, I, that's why I'm picking Francis in
0: this fight. Cody, if you're constructing this game plan for Nganu, does it come down to you? You know what the power situation is? Is it simply take down defense? You're obviously not going to be out wrestling Stipe, but the belief that, as James mentioned, Stipe is now 38 years old, and maybe he does not eat some of those shots that he did in the first fight. And you believe that you will land that shot and just do not allow this fight to go down to the canvas.
2: Yeah, I mean, takedown defense is going to be key. Cardio is also going to be key. As long as he can, you know, fight for a couple of rounds, he's every round starts standing. He's going to have those opportunities. He's just going to make sure that he doesn't gas out after one or two rounds and become a sitting target. But this is a noticeable thing for Stepe or for. Francis Ngannou. Prior to the first Stipe fight, he had largely knocked out all these opponents in the first round. Yeah, uh, Curtis Blades made it to the end of the second, Luis Henrique made it to the second, but on Anthony Hamilton, Andrzej Olofsky, Alistair Overham, all first round knockouts. When he fought Stipe Miocic, it's all of a sudden, oh geez, we didn't know that his takedown defense was lackluster, but it was the cardio. He got tired, and as he got tired, he got tentative, and as he got tentative, he just was not the same guy. Coming out of that Stipe Miocic fight, he takes on Derek Lewis. Now this one's notable because now he knows his cardio is not very good. All of his other fights, he had knocked out his opponents in the first round, early into the second round. He goes after them. He lets all of his energy fly. You don't notice he's getting tired because he knocks the opponent out. But in the Derek Lewis fight, I think that mentally he was thinking back to Stipe and decides, you know what? I'm going to just, I'm just going to try to conserve my energy. I don't want to get tired. There's a fear of getting tired. And as we all know, the Derek Lewis fight, one of the worst fights you've ever seen in your life and absolutely nothing happens. He changed the mentality after that. It was, you know what, maybe I will get tired, but I can't fight like I'm going to get tired. I just got to go out, let my hands go. The Curtis Blades rematch, very fast. Kane Velasquez fight, very fast. The Junior DeSantos fight, very fast. Kane and Junior no longer with the promotion. They're nice-looking names. They're very notable victories, good to have on the resume. But the guys that were past the hill, and past their prime, Yerzino you know, Rosenstruck. I mean, let's be honest here. The combination that knocks him out is six missed punches and a kill shot on the seventh. It's not exactly the most technically uh, combination. There's a lot of rawness and and this just wild aggression out of Francis Ngannou, but he's just looking to end the fight as quick as possible. If he doesn't knock out Rosenstruck, there, what was he going to do? Bomb rush him with another combination. Again, this is not good for your cardio. He's not fighting. He's not finding a game plan that's built around going three rounds or going five rounds. He's fighting now a game plan on just finishing as quick as possible. And, of course, this is heavyweight, whereas puncher's chances is, you know, it's times 10. He's the biggest power puncher we've seen in the heavyweight, heavyweight division for a very long time. No doubt about it, he's dangerous. No doubt he could go out there and knock out Stephen Miocic. But if he doesn't knock out Stephen Miocic in the first round, round and a half, maybe two rounds, I, I think that it does play out similar to last time. Whereas has shown us that he's got this back class. He's got this undesired, this unbreakable desire to win. He's always going to come forward. He's always going to fight you to the best of his abilities. There's no quit in him. The last time against Francis Ngannou, listen, we keep talking about how tired Francis was. Stipe was absolutely tired. He was cooked. He was very fatigued. He had been fighting a high pace in that fight, but he never let up. He kept grinding. When he needed the takedowns, he got the takedowns. The few times that Francis hurt him and shook him, he immediately got the clinch, got the fight to where he wanted to. The first Daniel Cormier fight, he gets knocked out, sure. The second Cormier fight, he he loses the first three rounds. He's getting beat. He's getting hit. He's He's slowing down. But that, unbreakable desire to win plays out I mean he works the body in the fourth round and he puts him over in the in the rematch against Cormier the trilogy fight I guess I should say it's the same thing it's like he shows you that he is he really is one probably the best heavyweight champion of all times he's one of the greatest heavyweights to ever fight the game he can fight five rounds he can wrestle he can strike he does have a good chin yes he has been knocked out by Stefan Struve and Daniel Cormier in the first round but Again, this is a guy that you really do have to put out to put away. And if Francis doesn't do that, then I got to go with Stipe. So I went with Stipe the first time around on the basis that I thought the wrestling and the cardio would be a huge factor. And even though he's a little bit older, I think they're going to be a huge factor here too. Last thing I want to mention is that we keep talking about Stipe Miocic is 38 years old. He's about to turn 39. I mean, he is in the prime lights of his career. Uh, Francis Ngannou is not exactly no spring chicken himself. He's 34 years old. He's coming up on his 35th birthday. And essentially he's knocked out four guys in the first round and had a really bad loss um, since then to Stipe. So, I honestly think that Francis is probably not the best version of him that we're ever going to see either. He's 34. He's made some money. Notoriously, he is at Extreme Couture, but most of his training partners say he kind of works by his own schedule. He's not there at wrestling practice every – you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. Like, he just kind of tailor-makes a camp around himself. Not a whole lot of guys want to spar with him. He mostly just works mitts. He mostly just works the bag. If his cardio is not up to snuff, I think Stipe is there for the prime, for the take-in. So, I'm going to go with Stipe Miocic. Actually, uh, James and I had a beer with Stepe one time. We met him at the Croatian Club in Toronto. He came did, in. Yeah. yeah, and just, like, a uh, super good guy. Nice. You see it in the interviews. You see it in, you know, everybody that's met him, spoke to him, spent time with him. He's a really good guy. He's a hard-working guy. He's a blue-collar guy. And I think that that blue collar hardworking mentality is what he needs to do here is just to uh, get back to the basics. But it, it's going to be a hell of a sweat for the first two rounds because he's dealing with dynamite. James,
0: as you look at the resume for Stipe Miocic, if we fast forward and see a successful title defense on Saturday, uh, everyone, I think, is looking at the, the next potential fight, that being with John Jones. If you are Stipe Miocic, is there any conceivable way that you see Stipe at this point, Calling it a day at at his career or when you're staring at a fight that big potentially uh, with John Jones that ultimately that is going to be pulling this guy back for at least one more fight.
1: I think you consider it for sure, and and I think I you know I sorry. So to answer your question, I think it's a bit of both. I think part of him is like, you know what, I got a family. Maybe it's time to ride off into the sunset. I got the firefighting thing; it's all good. Mm-hmm. Then there's the other side of it. It's John Jones. I mean, that's that's a fight anyone on the roster would want. It's a huge payday. It could set up his you know kids for the next little bit in terms of the payday on the fight. And let's not forget either that this was a fight that was supposed to take place. Dana White revealed this? Uh, it was supposed to take place uh, after the Daniel Cormier fight, the second one. But then of course Jones got popped for steroids. It completely you know squashed those plans but the plan was that year because the Cormier fight was in July they wanted John and Stipe to fight in December and that didn't end up happening because of the fact that John's got popped so this is a fight that's been discussed for a couple years I think there could be some interest there as well but we'll we'll have to see how the fight goes on Saturday like if it's a brutal loss or you know even even like a quick win like there there could be a lot of different ways this fight can go but I I would say if I had to give a percentage I'd say there's probably a 60 to 70 percent chance that Stipe takes that fight against Jones if he does win of course
0: do do you look at this, uh, Cody, from any particular standpoint of like John Jones watching this fight? What is n- number one? What is the more advantageous opponent for your heavyweight debut? And promotionally, I mean, does does Francis and Ganu have that that extra kind of promotional muscle that you know you put John Jones and Francis and Ganu? There's something more attractive to the public with a fight of that magnitude.
2: Yeah, I would think that would be the UFC's best bet is to get Francis versus John Jones, just being that Francis has this crazy power. And a lot of people, I would say that they're John Jones haters. You know, they want to see the guy lose. They want to see this unblemished record come to an end. It's the same thing in any sport. You tend to hate the guy who's the best. You know, nobody's cheering for Wayne Gretzky. No one's cheering for Lionel Messi, unless he plays for your team, of course. And it's the same thing in boxing with Floyd Mayweather. You're not tuning in to see Floyd run up another win. You're tuning in to see, hopefully, him lose that. Oh, John Jones has been near perfect. Yeah, he has a disqualification loss against Matt Hamill. But besides that, I mean, the guy is unblemished and a lot of people want to see him lose. They don't want to see him just lose a close decision like a Tiago Santos fight or a Dominic Reyes fight. They want to see an em- empathetic you know, uh, conclusion to the night. And I think that that's something that Francis Ngannou brings forward. When you think about a matchup with John Jones and Francis, it's very salivating. You know, John likes to play the outside game. He likes to mix in that wrestling. He's got great cardio, but at any point he gets hit by Francis a much larger man, it's game over. When you think about John versus Stipe Miocic, maybe not quite as exciting. You know, Stipe can wrestle a little bit himself, and Stipe, uh, his power punching is not the same as Francis Ngannou. And maybe John could take those punches and take him to some deeper waters. Like, breaking it down, maybe not as interesting. But still, you have you have Stipe Miocic, who's one of the most recognizable stars in the UFC. He's been the heavyweight champion for a, a number of years now. He's fought guys like Daniel Cormier. He's headlined pay-per-views that have sold pretty well. Uh, he's been there, done that. So I think that to see... You know, a guy like me, when you consider the greatest of all times for heavyweights, right? You think of Fedor, but it's like, oh, the way that run ended, especially. Maybe he's not the guy anymore. You think Cain Velasquez? and You know what? That is a little bit of a flash of a pan when I think back on it now. His body just wasn't able to keep up with the times. I think about Fabricio Verdum. Geez, you know what? He is to me actually one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. Um, but then you got Stipe. Stevie is a guy that knocked out Fabricio Verdum to lift his title off of him. He's a guy that's fought, you know, the who's who's of the division and the guy that always fights through to the end. So I think it's going to be interesting either way. The UFC probably has an easier time selling. The Francis Ngannou fight, but uh, I think that it's still going to be big business if they go Stipe Miocic, whatever whoever ends up finding it, it is John Jones at the end of the day, and it's John Jones in a largely competitive fight. It's not John Jones as a four to one favorite. It's not John Jones as a five to one favorite. Which is every time you see him, it's him in an actual competitive fight, and that they'll be able to sell. Regardless of that, though, when you look at the rest of the division, Derek Lewis, Alexander Volkov, Curtis Blades, Cyril guy, none of those guys are ready for a title shot right now. So very much the winner of this fight probably goes out there and fights Jones. And for Stipe, yeah, he definitely doesn't hang them up. He takes that fight.
0: Uh, It's a very big uh, night for Tyron Woodley. I think this is going to be very much a referendum on his career. James, do you still look that Tyron Woodley has it in him to be able to show the the brilliance of his past or have we just seen too much in these last three fights uh, of evidence to the contrary that tyron woodley i mean he's about to turn 39 uh can he turn back time in the in this fight because it seems like this this is very much that conclusive point for his career and which way it's going to go
1: it's the latter. I, I think Woodley's, uh, he's past his prime at this point. He's not the same fighter. It would be different if those last three fights, he actually won a round or they were mm-hmm. close, but they were all, they were, they were complete shutouts. Yep. And now you're fighting a guy who two of those losses is a guy that had trained with them. In fact, Gilbert Burns, um, I know Vicente mentioned to me that he was actually used in that prep in the training camp for Tyron Woodley when Burns fought Woodley, um, you know, to sort of mimic him and stuff. So, uh, you know, Luke is very much familiar with this opponent in terms of fighting Tyron Woodley. I also think Luke is very underrated. Uh, you know, it's, Side of the one lost to Wonderboy. He's pretty much won most of his fights. The loss before that was Leon Edwards. Like, this is a guy that continues to get better, and he's not even 30 yet. He's, he's coming into the prime of his career. And with Woodley, like it's just I don't know what happened. It's like ever since that Usman fight, it's just it, the, the you know the foot's been off the pedal. I think I think the Leon Edwards fight uh, when the pandemic started would have been interesting because Woodley was down in Thailand. He was training with Mike Swick at AKA Thailand. It seemed like he had sort of gotten out of his comfort zone and everything was good to go. But then but that fight obviously got canceled. Uh, then he had to fight Burns, and I think once Burns hit him right away, that game plan went under the went out of the the equation. And I think Woodley was just you know very much back. We've seen this even before he lost to Usman and Burns and in Covington, by the way. In that if you you know attack Woodley if you get him out of his element, he tends not to do so well. We saw that with Jake Shields. We saw that with Rory McDonald. And I think Vicente Luque has an opportunity to do that here as well, where you know he can just put him on his back and Woodley's in defensive mode as opposed to being the offensive fighter. So um, yeah, to answer your question, I think we've seen enough evidence at this point that Woodley's not the same fighter. I'd have an easier time disputing that. If he say, you know, had like a close, you know, round with with Burns or, or Covington or any of those, the Usman fight, whatever. I mean, that surprised everyone. But you know, the Burns and, and, and Covington fights, those are fights where he should have at least been a little bit more competitive in those. And I, I think, you know, he didn't. I don't think he won a
0: single round in any of those fights. And we're also talking about an era, Cody, where I mean, just having a name. Attached to you, being a former champion, uh, that does not mean you are above being cut by the UFC. And I think that's the territory we're talking about with Tyron Woodley if this is a loss that he's facing his fourth in a row on Saturday. If this
2: is a loss, it's probably the end of Tyron Woodley, which is why it makes him dangerous. You know, you get back a dog into a corner, he's going to come out swinging. And really, that's what Tyron Woodley needs to do. I mean, the Usman fight, the Gilbert Burns fight, the Colby Covington fight, not only does he lose every round, he loses every minute of every round. He never lets his hands go. He never gets into any sort of rhythm, any sort of vibe. And it's just a big problem. When I look at his whole record as a whole, I, I'm not impressed with any of it. I thought he lost both Stephen Thompson fights. One of them was 3-2 Thompson, but a 10-8 round gets him a draw. The other one was just a bad decision, but I just, I didn't think he looked good neither. The Damian Maya fight, he's taking a 40-year-old hand-picked Damian Maya. The Darren Till fight, Darren Till shouldn't have been fighting for a title. Darren Till actually landed zero significant strikes through nine minutes and 19 seconds of that fight. I'd let his hands go. It's been really unimpressive, but Woodley's never wanted to fight the top guy. He was always trying to fight Nate Diaz or Conor McGregor and saying how he deserved a super fight. And Woodley come off just as a not very likable champion when he got tested. I mean, he, he fell. He just he failed the task, right? But here's one thing that I will give him in this spot. Right? You look at the fact that he's almost 39 years old. It's the end of the road. Three fight losing streak. This is a must win situation. So one, at least we know that he might just let his hands go if he realizes this is the last time I'm stepping into an MMA cage. at the very least, maybe that tenacity comes back to him ever so slightly. The second thing here, John, this is the first time in six and a half years that Tyrone Woodley's been scheduled for a three-round fight. So Tyrone Woodley's not a guy that he conserves himself too much. He never lets his hands go. Like I said, he's not using his wrestling anymore. Why does a guy that has that good of wrestling not opt to use it anymore? Because he's worried about gassing. I mean, wrestling is very taxing on the body. If you're going to shoot, re-shot, there's scrambles, it tires you out. So he doesn't want to wrestle anymore. He just wants to sit there and look for that one big counter punch. But this being a three-round fight, at least theoretically, he could wrestle a little bit more. He could let his hands go a little bit more. And this is why this is an interesting fight for him, right? When you look at Vincente Luque, Vincente Luque is extremely hittable. To the tune that Brian Barbarina hit him 169 significant times, dropped him, and almost defeated him in that fight. Mike Perry hit some 87 significant strikes, Hurts him bad, loses a split decision in that fight. Stephen Thompson hit him 138 significant times. Nico Price hit him 129 significant times. And in his last time against Randy Brown, he looked a lot better, obviously. But he doesn't really tend to move his head a whole lot. He's extremely hittable. So being hittable is not going to be a good thing when you're taking on Tyron Woodley. Fighting Tyron Woodley in a three-round fight where he might actually push a bit of a pace is also going to be a problem. Then I look at the wrestling, right? Tyron Woodley in a three-rounder might actually wrestle. Well, Vincente Luca has given up takedowns to Randy Brown. He gave up takedowns to Nico Price. He gave up a takedown to Derek Krantz. His takedown defense is not nearly as good. And so that's the last little wrinkle here is that with Tyron Woodley, what's the game plan against Kamara Uzma? You're going to wrestle this guy? No. He's going to just grind you into an oblivion. Gilbert Burns, you weren't going to wrestle him. Colby Covington, you weren't going to wrestle him. He literally lost to three, two of the absolute best guys in the world, the number one two guys in the world for sure, and then Gilbert Burns, a top five guy in the world. Okay, so, like, losing to them really isn't the end-all, be-all. This is only a three-round fight. His, he should be able to hit Luque, which which surely caused a little bit of damage, and he might be able to mix in a takedown or two to try to secure a round. I mean, with Luque, we almost losing to Mike Perry and Brian Barbarena, he's got this thing where he fights to the level of his opponent. Now, I'm picking him based on volume, and I think that Tyrone Willey is shot, but considering Tyrone Willie's recent body of work, this would be, like, a spot that I think he does have a chance in. It just depends on the mentality and... What version of him comes out here? If he comes out swinging like he's got nothing to lose, this is the end of the road. Go for it. We seen with Amons a hobby a few weeks back, right? He's looked awful in the UFC. His back's up against the wall, but he goes out there as a free man. You know, there's no pressure on him. He lets his hands go and he scores a, a huge knockout win and extends his career. Woodley's just got to get that chip off his shoulder. You know, he's just got to get that, whatever's holding him back. And, you know, the Colby Covington fight, it's super, it's super emotional. A lot of emotions go into that fight. The Burns fight, not so much. The Usman fight was very emotional. A lot of emotions going into that stuff. Their title fights, their headlining fights, their pressure fights, this Luque fight, you know, if it, fits, if it fits him a little bit better mentally and he comes out here and does what he's capable of, I wouldn't say Tyron Woodley's absolutely got no shot here. It's just what we have seen over the last number of years is he's not the guy he used to be. and I never really thought he was all that special to begin with. So I would take Luque, but uh, I don't know that I'm like out confidence on it.
0: Man, Cody Saptic bringing uh, statistics and venom here in this, in this breakdown of uh, Tyron Woodley. Uh, last fight we'll, we'll touch on uh, from the main card. Uh, Sean O'Malley is looking to bounce back from the loss to Marlon Barra last August. And he's got Thomas Almeida, who's at an interesting spot. He's lost his last three fights. Um, James how do you like this as a fight for Sean O'Malley to kind of reestablish himself he's definitely not coming into this fight I think with the same uh, fanfare as his previous fights uh, nonetheless I am very very hesitant to uh, overlook Thomas Almeida even with you know he's been very inactive in these last three fights that go back to 2017 uh, but nonetheless this guy was a rising bantamweight within this division.
1: Yeah, I think this is a bit of a trap as well. I see O'Malley's almost like a three-to-one favorite in the fight. Um, Look, O'Malley's got great stand-up. He could very well go in there and knock out Thomas Almeida the same way, you know, Cody Garbrandt did or Rob Font. But I do worry a bit because I think a lot of people are putting too much stock into that last fight that Almeida had. It was against Jonathan Martinez. It was supposed to be Alejandro Perez. That opponent was switched up, I think, on fight week or very close to it. And, you know, when that happens and you haven't fought in, you know, more than a year, uh, you know, I, I do think it's just not great circumstances. He's had a full camp for this fight he was training with Charles Oliveira. I know for a fact he didn't, you know, from what I heard from his management, he wasn't doing a lot of media because he really wanted to focus on this fight and get back in the winning track. I I agree. I think Almeida can win this fight. Um, The problem is he does get hit a lot. And, you know, even before, like when he was on his winning streak, I remember when he fought Brad Pickett or Eve Jabouin even, I remember him getting hit in those fights. So if O'Malley connects, he could certainly put out his lights. But I do think as well, O'Malley, I think the verdict's still out on him as well. I mean, you know, the Chito-Vera fight, say what you want, whether Vera hurt him or not. I mean, the injury did play a role in the in the loss as well, I still think Chito you know, could have definitely won that fight even if that didn't happen. But you look at the level of competition. I mean, there are guys that were tailor made for him to beat, like Eddie Wineland, like Quinones, guys that have taken damage that you know were sort of set up. And then you look even before that, Andre Sukumta and Terry Ware. Those are two fighters not in the UFC anymore. So I do feel like O'Malley was even going into the Vera fight a little bit overhyped, and I think in this situation he's even a little overhyped as well. I don't know what type of Thomas Almeida we're going to get. That's why I can't pick him here because if he's not like he was before. I don't think he wins this fight, but if he's even close to it, I think there's a chance. And so I do I do think this is one of those fights that people need to be a little bit careful with whether they're betting it or they're picking it, because I don't think O'Malley's a slam dunk here, and I think this could be very competitive. But if I'm looking at the UFC, you know they could have given O'Malley a number of different opponents like that Eddie Wineland type of opponent as a bounce back fight, because he's good for business when he's winning. And the fact that they chose Almeida makes me think that they kind of want to get rid of Almeida. They think he's done. So I think they feel like he will win. I look at that optics as well, but I'm taking O'Malley in this fight.
0: Uh, Cody, are you, uh, betting wise, do you, do you stay away from a fight like this or do you, do you see a a clearer path to victory for one side over the other?
2: Yeah, well, James is banging on. It's a bit of a trap line, right? Three to one. I'm not disagreeing that Sean O'Malley shouldn't be the favorite. I'm not disagreeing that Sean O'Malley won't have a good chance to win this, but three to one, consider this, right? He's had four fights in the last three years in the UFC. Two of them have ended with him in a leg injury. Everyone wants to talk about the Marlon Vera fight, but he did the exact same thing in the Andres Tath fight. tath really just needed to stand up. Had he just stood up in that third round, O'Malley was compromised, and he would have lost that fight. So you have a guy here that does have skinny legs, and when you look at the Marlon Vera fight, did... Did Sean just roll his own ankle or was it the low calf kick? Did the low calf kick cause his leg to seize up? You see the exact same thing, Michael Chandler versus Brett Kremis and Bellator, right? Where it's like that low calf kick, it just kills the nerves. And all of a sudden you you can't stabilize any weight on it. If that's happened to Sean O'Malley in two of his last four fights, looking at a 50% there, uh, at, at any point you're betting this guy's a three to one. He could be winning. He could be looking awesome. He could be heading to, a, to a, a victory and, you know, something could happen and compromise his life. So you're always going to get some buyer beware there out of him. But honestly, I think that Sean O'Malley is very quick. He's very crisp. When you see him on the outside, all of his punches are very linear. They're very quick, but they're very straight. When you look at Thomas Almeida, he's very much got that classic shoot-to-box style. Now, listen, when we all used to hang out back in 2011, 2010, that shoot-to-box style was extremely effective. You got, had guys like Evangelista Silva, Anderson Silva, uh, the Shogun, Shogun and Ninja, who uh, my boy, Evangelista Cyborg Santos, they're heavy on their foot. They don't cut a whole lot of angles. They come forward, it's plodding, and they're big on the leg kicks. But that style just doesn't work anymore. You're seeing a lot of these guys that just the movements there, the footworks there, they, they move laterally and they're able to intercept you. And Thomas Almeida he throws a lot of hooks. So even though the reach is pretty comparable, Sean O'Malley's a lot faster, and I think he just beats him to the target. And therein lies the problem with, with Thomas Almeida. I mean, it's possible that taking the three years off between the Rob Font fight and returning against Jonathan Martinez was good for his chin, but let's not forget he got dropped by Brad Pickett. He got knocked out, but dropped by Cody Garbrandt. He got dropped twice by Jimmy Rivera. He got dropped twice and knocked out by Rob Font. And then his last fighting is Jonathan Martinez. Jonathan Martinez moved laterally. He did exactly what I'm talking about. He stayed to the outside, moved laterally. He allowed Thomas Almeida to follow him and chase him, and then he beat him to the punch. As a result, he outstrikes him. He picks up a decision victory. Sean O'Malley is fast. He is good on the outside and obviously training with the MMA lab. I mean, these guys specialize in the low calf kick. So Hopefully it's something that he's gone back to the, the drawing board and shored up. And with O'Malley, I think his confidence is his biggest weapon and it's also his biggest enemy. I mean, going into the Marlon Vera fight, he was not respecting a guy who quite literally could fight anybody in this division competitively. Marlon Vera loses the first round against anybody, but he's he's a top 15 guy. He's extremely strong. He's extremely durable. But going out there and having the Ecuadorian flag... Um, colored in your hair and just talking all this smack and not taking him seriously that's a recipe for disaster you're seeing O'Malley kind of take a different approach here where he's not going out there and guaranteeing this first round victory he's not going out there and talking a whole lot of nonsense he just realizes that he's confident in himself and his abilities and he wants to showcase that and I think he's going to have the chance to showcase that so this is a fun fight it's a good fight I think Thomas O'Malley is going to try to chase him down but my, my gut tells me at some point Sean O'Malley clips him so the three to one I wouldn't want to bet but Sean O'Malley by knockouts plus 150 so if I was going to take one side in this I would try to you know juice it up by taking the method of victory
0: two quick questions before we uh, wrap this up uh non ufc 260 related uh earlier this week it was uh reported by espn about misha tate planning to come out of retirement for this uh fight with marion renault on july 17th uh, i know you did a-, a video on this james but uh just quickly if misha tate number one do you like this move for misha and number two uh How far away is Misha Tate from a championship fight if she comes in with an impressive victory? Like, I think this could be, I think if she was coming back and announcing she's fighting at 145 pounds, she might be automatically your number one contender.
1: It is interesting. I think the thing people forget is that Misha's still only thirty-four years old, so yeah. it's not like she's coming back at you know in her in her late thirties. It's you know she could still you know potentially go on a run here, and the timing's interesting, right? Because Nunez obviously not without a really clear-cut opponent. I know Juliana Pena went on a Ric Flair sort of you know promo tour, uh, you know with the media, but she did lose two fights ago to Jermaine Durand so it's not like she has a super strong case to fight Amanda Nunez. So I think it is interesting the timing. You know, someone was asking me about this yesterday about you know is she how she going to do when she gets back? She might do well. Like I don't know how she would do against say Kunitsakaya or an Aspen Ladd or any of those fighters in, in the top you know ranking, even with Amari and Renault, yes, Renault's been more active, but Renault's forty three years old. She's lost four fights. She just lost to a prospect essentially in Messi Chasson. So uh, you know if Tate wins this fight, which I think there's a possibility she could do, um, I, who knows her next fight if her next fight could be for the title. So I think uh, you know I have mixed I have mixed emotions obviously with this because you know I think one on the one hand I think timing's good. I don't think there's a clear cut contender. On the other hand, I don't think she's beating Nunez, even if she did continue to fight fight uh Nunez is just on another level right now yeah. but um I, I think I think it does add some intrigue to a division that desperately needs something to happen because there just isn't any clear-cut contenders right now it's an absolute mess right now at Bantamweight so the timing of her
0: coming back is actually much needed and it, it was just such a wild year Cody that like her last uh year of of in-ring action was beating Holly Holm for the title losing it in her first defense and then losing to Raquel Pennington that was a March to November stretch in 2016
2: yeah, it was definitely a, a tough year. And with the, with the Holly Holm fight, it's like she's losing. She's down three to one and it's an epic fifth round comeback where she finally gets the takedown. She finally gets on the back. She gets the submission. It's a huge moment where it's like, you're finally the UFC champion. You know, nobody thought you'd be able to beat Ronda Rosie and she wasn't able to beat Ronda Rosie. But now that Ronda was defeated by Holm, this is your chance. She capitalizes on the chance and then losing to Amanda Nunez. It was tough. It was tough then, but you would probably think back then, well, I'll just go to the drawing board and shore up a few things. She loses up her follow-up fight with Raquel Pennington, and now it's like the path to the title's not quite looking as good as it was. But think about this is a girl that wins the title, loses the title. But beyond that, I mean, her longtime boyfriend, Brian Caraway, he gets her into the sport. He's by her side every step of the way. He's her lead cornerman. He's basically acting like as a part manager for her. Like, they're very close and entwined. And then her and Brian Caraway break up. She actually starts dating Johnny Nunez from Extreme Couture, has a baby. At this point, it's like, where is the path to the title there? But that's a lot of personal life stuff. So I think that, you know, splitting up with a long time your partner, you know, now you now you're having a baby, you're with somebody else, you just lost two fights consecutively, you're not entitled contention anymore, you're getting a little bit older. These are all reasons to walk away. And Misha Tate does it, but she did not walk away because she was over the hill. She walked away because she had all these changes coming on in her personal life. I know she's done a little bit of work for one FC in the time since that. Now she's back, she's reinvigorated, she's been in the gym for a while, looks like she is in good shape. And this is a great fight to come back with Marion Renaud because as, as much as people are speculating Misha Tate's a little bit old, she's nine years younger than mm-hmm. Marion Renault, which to me is just absolutely crazy. The gym teacher keeps doing it uh, in one Marion Renault. But yeah, with Misha Tate, this is a fun fight to come back to. My thing is that, is she far from a title fight? No, no, because she's a notable name. And I mean, Nunez has defeated everybody else in the division, so why not have a run back? But I don't know how much interest she'd be having in having a fight with Nunez, especially off the hop. Like if you beat Marion Renault, you're going to jump right into a, a world title fight. I just, I don't know. You were defeated soundly the last time. There's just like a lot of question marks going on there, but here's the greatest angle here. John, I think you'll appreciate this one because you've had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Juliana Pena about Ronda Rousey. Remember how crazy she would get and how she like smashed her glass just here, seeing Ronda Rousey, this girl's ducking me, and she'd get ways too emotional and fired up. If Misha Tate comes in and uh, leapfrogs Juliana Penka, I can't wait for the interviews. They are going to be great. But, uh, yeah, either way, I think it's exciting to re-add Misha Tate, a former champion. And the division, they need life. They need they need that that, that big-name competitor. Whether she's at the highest level anymore, it's fine. You can still give her, as James mentioned, this is a great point. You know, you have those Aspen lands of the world. You have some of these young and up-and-coming fighters but what's going to get them over the hump right they need to fight the holly holmes they need to fight misha tates they need to fight sarah mcmahon's they need to fight those girls that have a name in the division but maybe aren't quite there anymore so misha tate plays a good role either her skills have not been regressed and she's going to come out here and be competitive and can eventually work herself into a title challenge challenger situation or she's going to be there to promote that next that next brand of young mma prospect coming out of the 135 pound division
0: and the last thing, I'm going to make this very Canadian-centric, given the uh, the, the panel here. Uh, Bellator is coming back next week. We've got Bellator 255. James, how are we going to watch this thing in Canada? I've emailed them and I've got no response back. I'm going to have to, like, I, I almost want
1: to message them and be like, do you want me to pirate this? Because I need to watch this for my job. Like, you guys got to get this together. It's, it's insane to me that they have not made Canada more of a priority considering how big MMA here is in terms of the viewership um, and, and just keeping us posted. I get asked that at least once a day about Bellator uh, being on in Canada and I still have no idea how to watch it. I don't know where they'd host it. They can't host it on TSN because they have the UFC rights, conflict of interest, obviously. Um, you know, even if they just put it on YouTube or something, that would be good. Like I think that's
0: probably the 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 last case, the last ditch effort is is YouTube. Like you've got to have yeah. some window here, and uh, Scott Ogre said as much that you know they're working on whatever their plan is for Canada. But I mean, we're eight days out here; it's got to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. It just seems that um, I I really question like where the what the Bellator fan base is in this country at this point. It's it's never been on stable footing in this country, but. Here we are like this is this is a huge, you know, reinvention of Bellator, this this launch of the Grand Prix that you hopefully have like a solid strategy moving forward beyond just your your partnership in the U.S.,
1: is it gonna be on Super Channel is my question. Remember they used to put the Strikeforce card thing, right? So. Yeah, yeah,
2: hells yeah. I remember that. I got posters that still have Super Channel like pasted on the bottom. What do of I? Them. I
1: got that same one. It's up in my office. It's yeah. uh yeah, I like I just hope that's not what it is. Cause like I don't want it to be like, remember with Access TV, like we we had it and then we didn't, right? For years. And it was like, how am I gonna watch LFA? It's like, oh well, I gotta like find a stream or something so yeah they, they got they got to get that together bellator is a great promotion like when it comes to you know media and you know access and all that stuff they're awesome but they man do they ever drop the ball on the on the streaming side of things like not even just with this but the remember these do the tape delayed stuff it's like that's something they've got to fix and get get sorted out asap
0: on these there's some big fights like next weekend's main event with, with Pipple and emmanuel sanchez like there there is some great stuff that they have lined up for these these next couple of uh shows uh so Hopefully, uh, we don't have to be, uh, getting virus updates on our computer to try and follow the Bellator product, but, uh, <laughs> we, we shall see what happens, uh, over the next week with that. Guys, uh, I kept you longer than I, uh, initially asked you guys to join me. So thank you so much for, uh, lending me your time. Uh, want to get all your, uh, your plugs out. Uh, Cody, where can people get more of Cody Saptic's opinions?
2: Yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, at CJ Safta, but I'm going to take this t- this time to plug the Bellator undercard. Mads Bernal, Saul Rogers, Carlo, uh, Roger Huerta's back, Mandel Nelo, shout out to Canada, Magomed Magomedov, you remember him as the only guy to defeat Peter Jan clean. He's also 17-1 with the loss to Peter Jan. This is an absolutely loaded card, top to bottom, and hopefully that's something that something does get figured out. But, yeah, if you have any questions, UFC, Bellator, PFL, uh, ACA, whatever that they're offering lines on. You can hit me up at CJ Saftik and John, always my pleasure. James, great chatting up again and
0: good luck to everyone moving forward. And James, the floor is yours. Uh, Congrats. As I mentioned on the, on the recent gig with, uh, with middle easy and uh, one of the best interviewers out there.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you guys for having me on. Always good to to chat with you guys and always uh, appreciate when you reach out. I'm always game to do these. At Lynch on Sports, I keep it simple. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, that's where you can find me. I put all my content on there, even the stuff I do for other outlets. It's in playlists. Very easy to go. And I'll also echo what Cody said. Uh, This is a stack card I already talked to Emmanuel Sanchez, really pumped about that. by going to be talking to Pitbull on Sunday. But I'll tell you a guy I'm really excited for in this card, Jason Jackson. This guy mm-hmm. looks like he is a wrecking ball, I think, totally. eventually. It's only a matter of time before he's going to be fighting Lima for the title. Uh, he's one of the standouts at Sanford MMA. So keep an eye. He's fighting Neiman Gracie, who uh, I don't know if you guys saw Gracie switching up camps. He's at Kings MMA right now. So really excited for that matchup.
0: Yeah, this is a very good card next, next Friday. Um, and I will just uh, mention, James, uh, on the graphic side, Is there anyone who is more of a mover and shaker behind the scenes of the MMA slash pro wrestling podcast world than one Robert Pearson?
1: Yes. Oh, man, that guy is that guy's phenomenal. He's he's the the one made. He made all my artwork um he's he's the best in the business i don't think there's anyone that comes close so i I love and i love those posters that ariel does he should be making that into merch i don't know why he doesn't that that's his next step i think
0: well guys uh thank you so much for this uh this great round table chat i hope we can do this again in the future uh you can catch all of our coverage of ufc 260 this saturday night up on the website myself and phil chair talk will be live on the post wrestling youtube channel immediately after the card and of course follow Cody Saftik, James Lynch, all their great work. And that is it for us. This has been your UFC 260 preview show.